This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Tomome. Hi, I'm Paul. And we're going to talk about Deus Irae, a 1976 novel by Philip K. Dick and Roger Zelazny. Um, I've not read this novel before. I don't know if I would recommend it to people, but it was interesting. What about you guys? I, I had a copy for years that I hadn't read. I glanced at it. I bought it because, well, hey, I, it's Zelazny. This was before I got into it. It's like, this is back when I would read anything by Zelazny, including uh, his notes on a, on a lunch bag. But, mm-hmm. I, and it looked, eh, and I put it aside and never really got around to reading it for years thereafter. And I read it at some point, forgot it. Then I listened to the, to the audiobook recently to uh, talk about it here with you guys. Did you say you read it yeah. and forgot about it? I, I, I forgot most of the details. Like, like bits and pieces came to me about Tibor and whatnot. And as I was going, I was listening to the podcast into the audiobook. I was like, Oh yeah, I remember that. Oh yeah. There's the great sea. And, mm-hmm. and it just, the pieces started to fall back together again, as I had woken up from my Gnostic dream of, uh, a Gnostic dream, a, yeah. not, not Gnostic dream of, uh, oblivion about what, the, what the book was actually about. Were, were you con- confused about things the first time you read it that were cleared oh. out the second time? The, the the book the book is opaque to say the least, especially at the beginning. It takes a while yeah. to to get get into it. And l- listening to the audiobook, I was I was in that sort of state of uh, of uh, you were letting it pass over you and through you. Yeah, I was letting it pass <laughs> over and through me. It, it wasn't until he's actually on the pill that I finally really got my feet under myself again. Yeah, I think that's the book and not you, because I have the same experience. Yeah, me too. Like, I listened to the beginning. I was like, oh, I can't get into this at all. And then, I don't know, there was some scene that uh, just caught my interest later on. And it seemed more simple or more accessible later. Like, I wouldn't recommend this book for everybody. Maybe for people that are super-duper Phil Kiddick fans and also have an interest in religion. Mm. It might uh, this book might interest them. Otherwise, it's it's kind of an unusual. Is this new wave? I guess it's a new wave huh. kind of a book. I don't know. I I think that's what some people call it. I think Scott might have mentioned that, but I I don't like new wave stuff. I find it to be basically shitty. Uh, but I would say this is more Philip K. Dicky. Uh, see, I can't really figure out where Roger Zelazny comes in exactly. Um, I don't I, know. I think he, he just had the knowledge of uh, Christianity, maybe. You know what? There's not that. I mean, I don't. Philip K. Dick probably knew more about Christianity than I do. He he went to, you know, he tried to convert a couple of times or not convert. I don't know, adopt or whatever. It, it there, it's not super super deep here. Yeah, but not not at the point of where he where he wrote this novel. I mean, later when he get into the. Later seventies. I guess that's true. Yeah, it was started in the sixties, right? Um, the, this, the the original start of this novel is somewhere in the mid sixties. It took about twelve years to write, from what I understand, yeah. because he sent he sent it to uh, Ted White first, and to 
try to fix, and Ted White couldn't yeah, do anything a with it. Yeah, choice. I, I don't know much about Ted White other than he wrote these um, novels, sort of physician doctors in space novels, right? Yeah, the Sector General. Yeah, I, well, why why would he have chosen him, or is it just, hey, yeah, sure, sort of bump into him at a convention sort of thing? I, I, I Are there <laughs> friends? Yeah, I can't I can't see what connection Ted White's uh, fiction has. Well, why Dick would pick him? So Zelaz- yeah. Zelazny would have been a much more logical choice right from the get go. I mean, Z- yeah. so Zelazny's interest in mythology and and religion throughout all sure. his work makes made him a a better choice right from the start. It was just by accident that Zelazny got a hold of the manuscript. I I I do feel that that this story is probably eighty. 80-85% Dick. I mean, there's yeah. there's several Dick pieces and stories that almost that are, that this connects to or, or they've taken directly from. And mm-hmm. like the Great Sea, for example, is sure the Great Sea. Yeah, so let's talk about that one. So I got I sent you both that. Uh, it's not public domain, sadly, but it uh, it was originally published in the 50s, and it's a story. A uh, post-apocalyptic story, kind of similar. Guy goes on a sort of a pilg or pilgrimage, right? Um, did you read it, Tam? Uh, unfortunately, no. Oh, okay. Well, um, Paul and I have both read it. It's basically, uh, well, well, go for it. Explain it, Paul. Um, it's post-apocalyptic. This village every year sends somebody to ask the the local AI three questions. It's it it it's implied that if this sacrifice, which reminds me of things like the sacrifice of Athenians to the Minotaur, is not yeah, born. that's totally what it's yeah, about. Bad, bad things will happen. So every, every every year they come up with three questions. They send some poor schmuck to ask the Great Sea, and every year the poor schmuck does not come back, and we learn why this poor schmuck doesn't come back. Yeah, because the questions, uh, it, it does a really good thing, right? When the end is like, oh, I see those. The questions are not the kind of questions you would expect. It's like a it's like a Jeopardy game, right? It's it, it's like a Jeopardy game, and the the the, the computer knows much more. I mean, the, I, I get the I get the feeling I was reading the story that the guy doesn't even really understand the answers. Sure, sure. Especially the whole heliocentrism versus geocentrism. Yeah, yeah. He just doesn't get what's going on, and I found it interesting. Having read the, the the novel and listened to the novel first, and then seeing this, how 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 the um, how it's handled in the book, and how the computer is outwitted. Yes. Now, uh, do you think that the, this is uh, just a revisit to the same one in the story, or do you think that this is sort of just completely outside of that story? Like, if you were saying whether they're in the same universe or not. Uh, it's probably before, right? Rather than, but see, I don't think it. <laughs> I don't well, there's, think there's, it's not enough time for it to have been before, and not yeah. all the physical details are the same. I, but I, there's enough that I, 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 I think that. Um, that now I'm going to go on a slight tangent. Have you guys ever read the uh, the the New Foundation trilogy that uh, Benford Bear and uh, no. Bryn did? No. No, I haven't even read Foundation. Oh, anyway, anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll make I'll make this brief. They they asked these guys to write prequel Foundation novels, and I 
The first one is by Gregory Benford, and I was reading, I was reading it, and I enjoyed it. There's a weird, there's a weird diversion in the middle of the, of the plot where, where Harry Seldon and friends wind up getting put into the bodies of chimpanzees on this <laughs> alien planet to try to escape the people who are chasing them. It's, it's, I, I thought it was odd at the time. I was like, okay, odd, strange, decent. Then, a few months later, I was reading a best of Gregory Benford, and I come across a story where the researchers are being chased by bad guys, and <laughs> on it, on the same named alien planet, and they get put their bodies into chimpanzees. Mm-hmm. And the, the detail in the plot was point for point. Uh, I was, I was pissed off. The this, this story yeah. predates the novel, so clearly Benford took his story reworked a bit and dropped it into the, the foundation novel. Yeah. And it, it's annoyed me ever since I haven't read paycheck, it. Right? Yeah. It's a paycheck, right? It's a paycheck. He doesn't care. He doesn't care about this. If you want to read this piece of shit, that's fine, but I'm getting paid. Um, which is why people write those books, right? All those Dune books and foundation books that exploit the earlier uh, goodness and make it shittier. Um, I, I didn't quite feel that bad here. Well, yeah, Philip K. Dick is, was known for pot-boiling and just turning out stuff left, right, and center. It, mm-hmm. it, but it didn't feel like he was doing it so, what's the word I'm looking for, cynically. Yeah, he's, uh, he wasn't as cynical. You know, when they, they um, he, he's very, um, he's always looking for the, the truth behind things, right? And I mean, that's really what his, his shtick was. But when they offered him a boatload of cash to rewrite uh, do Android's dream of electric sheep to make it more like the movie? He said, no, I'd, I'll not take the money. I just want my book republished. So he's like Tibor. He's in search of the truth. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that, I mean, that he is sort of the viewpoint character. And all of the conversations that Tibor has along his pilg, that is, I mean, I never met Philip K. Dick, but if you, you know, spend enough time reading people's novels and hearing interviews with them, and reading about what other people said, you sort of get a sense of how they are. That's that was just basically his thing: is to sit around thinking about uh, stuff and and thinking, <laughs> thinking, well, well, if this is true, then that would be true, and that'd be cool. Mm. And then the next night, completely different, sort of same thing, but completely different. He he couldn't stick to any one thing because uh, all these intellectual problems for him. Uh, need to be worked out, but they don't, they're, they don't have to stay as the gospel for him, right? There's no fixed ground that he's always, uh, you know, he builds upon. He just sort of re, reworks the same territory with a little bit of a different spin. And so I, I would t- say this, this is like his tackle on religion. Um, but he's tackled it many times. Um, in other books, it's also very similar to another Philip K. Dick novel called Doctor Blood Money. Yeah, you read that one, Paul? I I, ha- I have the, the 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 whole. I mean, after nuclear war, having a protagonist who doesn't have any arms or limbs, I I, I was immediately reminded of that as well. Mm-hmm. And it has a lot of sort of the the dealing with nucle- nuclear fallout, uh, not just as nuclear fallout, but the fallout from such a, you know, biblical-sized apocalypse that would do to humanity and, and you know, people who are like, you know, 
living in Southern California sort of thing, you know. Uh, or in this case, they're they're in Utah and Denver, I guess. But it's it it's it doesn't seem like there's no economy, right? <laughs> like they spend a lot of time drinking coffee. Where the hell's that coffee? Come I from? wondered that. I wondered that too. Where are they getting this coffee? They should have. I mean, I mean, in in that uh, great in that great uh, sea story, at least they make reference to stuff running out and not having the. Yeah. But but in but in this novel, I just wondered where is he even getting stuff like his art supplies? It just the 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 the, the socioeconomic underpinnings of this post-apocalyptic society seem a little wonky to me. Yeah, it, it's almost like it it's not science fiction. It's more like it's it's um its own brand of fantasy. Um, because, and that's more of a Zelazny thing, but, yeah. but I would say that it, it's just Philip K. Dick doesn't care about the economy of it. I mean, all these people go around in this book doing sort of gift economy <laughs> sort of style actions, you know. Um, this guy's helping that guy, that guy's going on a pilgrimage, they're getting paid in coffee. <laughs> it's like. Maybe it's cat butt coffee. It, it's not cat butt coffee, I don't think, Tam, because, um, I don't think Philip K. Dick would have drank that. Uh, that. The real place where it's coming from is is from the corner store by Philip K. Dick's house, <laughs> you know, because he would go home and drink a lot of coffee while he's he's doing this uh, sort of bullshit around the the dinner table, I guess. I guess he, he's not really a hard SF writer. He's more of a loosely, I guess you called soft SF. Yeah, Just but depending to whatever point he wants to make. But that, but the thing is, is he can, you know, like if if you read The Man in the High Castle, he does a ton of research. It's not like systematic. It's not academic style research. It's, but it he he at least can when he wants to make things plausible, right? Um, it, it's not <laughs> the concerns of everybody in this story are very um, not about you know getting three squares meals a day. The closest we come to that is the the guy at the end, drunk, who's worried about his bottle. But is he really worried about his bottle? That's, you know, a different story. Um, so uh, before we get into the plot, I, I wanted to point out that there are some other stories that this is also from. Uh, so there's one called Autofac, and we meet the Autofac in the story, right? Yep. Autofac, I think, is later than the 60s. Um, could be wrong about that. Let me just look. Uh, oh, it's 55. Okay, I'm wrong. Um, and Autofac is uh, a story of a auto- automated factory. Um, this is a, an idea he's come up with a few times in different things. And it's um, it might be set on another planet. In this case, I can't, can't remember uh, if it's on another planet or if it's on Earth. But the idea is um, humanity's problems are solved by a machine that can just make a, make anything. But that also makes people not able to do anything because there's no craftsman if you can uh, automate all the production, right? There's no so when the machines break down or when the machines are competing with you know people, the uh, the workers can't afford to pay for anything. Because they have no jobs, um, and in this case, the autofac is a little bit broken, like everything else in the world. 
And it's a weapon of war. It, it, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an economic weapon, right? No, well, no, I, I got the feeling that the Russians dropped this on there so that it could just produce weapons of war during the during the last conflict. Yes, but also as an economic weapon, um, it, it can be used like you know in the same way that it, it, I think you might be right in that they're invading and they're you know they can resupply their troops or something. But it can also be like you know. In war, one of the things they can do is they subvert the enemy's economy uh, by printing up fake money and flooding it into the the nation. Using Gresham's Law, yeah. Yeah, and that's like a um, sort of tra- traditional usage that Dick was probably aware of. What's, um, what's Gresham's Law? Gresham's, Gresham's Law means that the that fakes or uh, devalued money will drive out good money by just by overwhelming it in the economic system. Oh. It also undermines the economic system just by m- people not uh, trusting it and right. wanting to yep. wanting to find an alternative or, or just refuse the idea is they might refuse to just participate. Um, but... The, that's not the only one. There's a story called The Crawlers, which is also public domain, which is about, uh, it's not actually set after a nuclear war. It's set near a nuclear accident at a, or a experimental nuclear station. And the people in the nearby town are being born, um, as mutants. As in the book here, it's, they're called inks, right? Incompletes. Um, they don't have any arms or legs. Um, the, in the case of the crawlers, they just look like sort of like slugs with human heads. And uh, that's a pretty gruesome story uh, because people are running them over <laughs> on tr- trucks and beating them up because they're driving them out of the community. But it's it's kind of like the thalidomide baby thing as well. You know, like uh, it, that's probably where Dick was getting it from is is actual people born with disabilities because there certainly wasn't a nuclear war when he was he was alive the luminite is probably where he was going with that yeah the the little uh birth defect problems well what is that it was a drug for what was it for Paul? it, 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 it was a drug for preg for pregnant women to no, no, no! It wasn't was it? for pregnant women. I, I th- I thought it was I, just a drug for something, and then it caused birth defects for pregnant women. Oh, I, th- I thought it was like some like a drug to ease their uh, pregnancy. But yeah, no. but lots of pregnant women took it. the The problem is the the chirality of the molecule. While we're way off topic, the the left handed version of the drug is fine and works just just well. But the other side is uh, a poison and. Uh, mutagen for uh for fetuses so treatment for leprosy and for cancer oh okay yeah um and and yeah so if you happen to be pregnant and taking this drug um what it the way it worked is it it reduces blood flow um in uh, capillaries or something so um babies that would be born uh, that were s- submitted to it wouldn't have fully grown uh, limbs because the, in the in the developmental stage the arms and legs wouldn't be given priority just like your arms and legs aren't given priority when you're you know freezing to death something like that 
But yeah, so this is a problem that's like, hey, it's funny, all these women are having birth defect babies. Why is why would this be happening? What's in common? And oh, it's thalidomide. Okay. And so I, I believe they still use it, but they they well, try and limit it uh, to people who are not going to... Also, they, they put a lot of uh, restrictions to make sure that the right version of the molecule is used mm-hmm. ra- ra- rather than the one that causes all the problems. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the real tragedy of thalaminite. It, 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 it's, it's in every organic chemistry textbook ever written since then. Chirality matters. Yeah, it's a... Um, uh, I, I think the other... Other science fiction authors have dealt with uh, the left-hand, right-hand thing a little better than Vic does, obviously. But uh, I think there's an Arthur C. Clarke story that uh, that has something, a very early one that has something to that effect about uh, left-hand versus right-hand. But um, there's another story as well. Um, do you remember in the book, guys, there's a scene with the, uh, an apple tree? And the apple tree throws down its its uh, withered apple. Oh, he was being yeah. tempted in the desert or something by the apple. Well, yeah, um, and that see, that that's also a, from another Philip K. Dick story. There's a story called "Of Withered Apples," which is a very strange fantasy story about a girl whose husband gives her permission to go out and uh, I guess play in the yard. And she leaves the yard and goes up to visit uh, an apple tree. And it's surrounded by dead orchards of apple trees. There's only one apple tree that's still alive. It was an old farm. And the apple tree is communicating with her somehow. And it gives her an apple, which she eats, and it kills her. (laughs) And from her grave, a new apple springs. And now that I'm thinking about it, that actually fits with the ending of this book a little bit. I'd never heard of this story. Yeah, if you listen to the SFF Audio podcast, you would know that it's available as a full I show. Do, <laughs> I do listen. I just apparently missed when you missed that, that one. Did we do? Did a, we did a read along on this. We did, and we did okay. audiobook and a read along on that one so um, with Julie Davis doing the narration. I think. Um. So it's uh it's 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 very briefly mentioned that scene I I don't think um uh Peter uh Peter Sands is his name yeah, right Pete Sands I don't think Peter does he visit that he he follows in the footsteps of of Tibor but I don't think he visits the apple tree does he No he 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 visits he visits the uh computer he visits the artifact he runs into the Hunter. The hunter. He runs into the lizards, but he, I don't think he ever visits the apple tree. I think that's just for Tibor alone. Mm. And uh, there's some idea, you know, about it being the garden, the apple tree in the Garden of Eden or uh, Garden of Eden, but um, it's it's not really picked up. And I, I would think that that's one of the places where the story was set down, you know, because it doesn't really pay off that scene, does it? No, that the. the the, 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 the thing about this story is there, there's a lot of things that don't go anywhere, and you can tell, although the, here I go ascribing authorial intent and authorial action mm-hmm. to the story, where things stopped and started up again, and like like the dog, for example. Mm. The dog disappears for a length of time, and then suddenly T-War remembers the dog is there. Right. It's just like out of nowhere, 
the dog's been there all this time, just been quiet. It's just, it's just like, uh, and and it's like, oh, the dog's back. Oh, the dog's died. It, it just there, there's mm. a very herky jerky sort of uh, flow to it. it but I, I think that has been the problem of it being written over twelve years and just being sent mm-hmm. back and forth by uh, paper mail. Yeah. yeah, I almost thought this was serialized. It had like this episodic feel to it, but I guess they handed it in all in one shot. Yeah, it was not written for serialization. I think it was just written. Uh, ah, it's done. Let's get and pass it on. Yeah. Um. In the parallel voyage or voyage, the pilgrim parallel pilgrimage of Peter Sands is um is it, the I've seen maybe that's the Lasneys. He's revisiting the same territory. He's going to meet him up, and then there's going to be a uh, sort of a confrontation of some kind. But that's not the only story, right? There's also um, the story of of the guy and his daughter. The guy with the face problem. <laughs> he, he gets out of bed and he goes to the bathroom and yells at his daughter, and then he starts cutting into his head. Yeah, wife to sell. Yeah. Uh, according to the Wikipedia entry, his name means um, Devil from the Sky. Oh, that's it's, appropriate. It is kind of appropriate, considering what he's doing, right? He's the Deus oh, Irae, right? He is. Uh, yeah, or he's the representative of the Deus Irae. So th- there's a lot of interesting things you can do, especially in the end with that bum. Uh, I think that that was really... Kind if there if this novel has a point, I can imagine it. Philip K. Dick tried to convert to Christianity, not that he was anything before, but he tried a couple of times, I think. And one of the times he did, um, he talked, you know, he talked to some local, I guess, Californian um, pastor who was quite good at speaking, sort of fairly intellectual. Um, which was what Philip K. Dick likes, right? He likes, <laughs> but the thing is, is if people come to your door, knock, knock, hey, would you like to convert to our religion? Which, which was very common then and still is, I guess, happening now. Um, there are a class of people who don't just say go away or they don't just say come in and yeah, show me what you got because my life's kind of crappy. But there's another class of people who they come in and they listen. And then they say, what about this? Because they they know all the facts, right? That, uh, you know, that Jesus came to earth and that he was died for our sins and all that stuff. They know the facts, but they just sort of want to engage with somebody who believes because they like that idea of belief. And that, I think, is how Philip K. Dick would look at it. Because if you think of, you go into the, if you guys have both been in churches, I'm sure, if you go into the church, often they will have a cross on the wall. <laughs> often. Not always, I guess. I, often. But in some kind of churches, they also have a, a man on that cross. and Or a picture of that man who was on that cross. But where does that picture come from? And that, I think, is where the story, if there is a point to it at all, really is working, right? Is the, That picture is not really Jesus. Because in the Bible, nobody actually took a photograph of him. It's just a representation of what they think he was like, right? He's he's a guy, not too uh, not too ugly, because doesn't say anything about him being ugly. He probably had a beard, maybe long hair, you know. But we sort of recognize Jesus now, even though there is no painting of him, there is no photograph of him from 
contemporary days because we've seen him represented so many times. This is the sort of question that's like, well, does it matter that we've got a false image? Maybe it's not false. Right? Well, it's also also a matter of see, seeing ourselves in that religious image and vice versa. I mean, the, I mm-hmm. mean, the, 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 the real historical person known as Jesus was not blonde haired and blue eyed, white paled skinned. I mean, given his uh, origins and where he lived, he was probably much more uh, dark, dark, dark skinned and uh, dark haired. And you don't see that, but because the artists are using the community themselves to reflect what what Jesus means to them. I mean, I mean, in African churches in Africa, you, sure. you see, you see, you see, you see him as as African. You see, right. it's in in the. I mean, Tibor is obsessed with seeing the real. The real uh, Deuce IRA, he doesn't quite realize, or, or at least they've forgotten that it doesn't really matter. It's a matter of what, what what the symbol is, and you're drawing that symbol. And in a sense of the whole, I mean, this 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 the novel is extremely gnostic. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, it's like yeah, that's exactly. I mean, what it is. it's just making a connection to to the divinity. You don't have to have the exact image to do that. I mean, it helps, but. This kind of reminds me of Zelazny and Trump's in the Amber series, where mm-hmm. you have these representative images of the family. Now they don't look exactly what they look like on the card at the when you're contacting them through the Trump because the, they were made decades or hundreds of years ago. But it's an image of that person that connects to that person, and so as lo- as long as that image has a connection to the real thing, it's all good. Yeah, you know, Islam goes the opposite way, and it probably, in my guess, in, in some clever reaction to the way that Christianity went, right? Um, Christianity started off with um, the same background as, as Judaism, is like, let's not represent God, because um, it says so in the Bible, and also, uh, our God is greater than all those other idols that are being worshipped in that temple, you know? Our God is so big, you can't even you know, put a picture on them. So when when you hear people upset about uh, depictions of Muhammad, right, it's, it's probably um, in part that policy is there because it avoids that whole question of, yeah, of course, there was no photo- photography back then. Um, Lincoln is an icon um, that we have a photograph of, and Elvis is an icon we have a photograph of. We could... Uh, paint a f- painting of Elvis, but we always have those reference f- photographs, but we don't have one for Muhammad. Um, and since we don't, we ought not is the idea, perhaps. Um, and so that, that dealing with it, um, in the way that the Christians have is a very, sort of a, that intellectual, um, argument that you get in this book is very, um, above the level of the majority of the people who are participating in the religion is my guess. But because I don't, I don't, you know, the people who um, I know who are believers, they tend not to worry about such details about whether that is actually a picture of Jesus on the wall because it doesn't bother them that, you know, like just trying to, it's like, um, if you, if you, uh, 
watch Star Trek and you say, you know, those Klingons, they, they're not the same kind of Klingons as they had in the original show, the ones they have in the in the Star Trek movie. This, I, I'm not buying into this. Some people just say, don't worry, just go with it. Right? And some people don't even notice. And the ones who don't even notice are are the vast majority of people, right? The vast majority of people don't actually care that much about the show's details. They just like the story. Yeah. This, so this is this this gnostic sort of gloss on it. I think is exactly why it 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 works, even though it's really not a great novel. It kind of works as what it is. What do you say? What are you going to say, Paul? It 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 does work as what it is. It and getting too and going too deeply trying to get that perfect detail. I mean, that's what sends Tebow on this whole crazy quest that nearly kills him mm-hmm. several times. I mean, he could have, if he wanted to, just painted the picture from that one photograph of the him at the Hawaiian luau, and it would mm-hmm. have been all good. I, I, I. I in reflection, I wonder if the church, the the church leaders, just wanted him out of the way for whatever reason. I mean, I mean, he could have, he could paint a perfectly good uh, representation just from that one image. Just although although the, the the quest itself does change Tibor and makes him a better artist in some ways. So, mm-hmm. and I, I I was really touched again this time that. When he briefly had arms and legs, or at least he <laughs> thought he did. I mean, I mean, what really happens and what doesn't really happen in this novel is a matter of debate. Did he really yeah. meet the Deuce Ira there? Was yeah, I was going to ask snap? about that scene. Yeah, well, he's out in the desert, so <laughs> he's out in the <laughs> desert. That, that 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 itself is mythologically and religiously yeah. important, and he has the vision. Yeah. Is that, that vision of the Deuce Ira? Yeah. Uh, so doesn't that it, mean it, that he know already knows what he looks like? So why would he think that the bum is? He looks like a bird, right? He says, "I'm I was that bird." Um, I don't know. What I what I want to ask about is what what's what's what do you think is going on with the cow? <laughs> because there's a cow that apparently doesn't need to drink or eat very much. Yeah, that is that is one super cow that drags him all along this entire. Time. It is. It is. It is very camel. It's a holy cow, is what I would say. She. She. Very specifically, um, she is a is kind of a holy cow because at one at one scene it was very funny. Um, re, I don't know, rather late in the book, um, he's I guess he's he's got his grease on his wheel or whatever. He's he's back out on the uh, on the trail, and he says, uh, or the author says, the authors say um, something to the effect of the. The cow slept and dreamed. Tibor ruminated. <laughs> Usually that would be the reverse. Usually it's the reverse, right? The cow's ruminating. Could have been a mistake. But, <laughs> no, 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 no. No, that's deliberate. Deliberately. I mean, you could argue that it was actually, he didn't know that he had made that joke, but um, I think that, that the cow is, is like sort of, it seems happy on the trail, right? It 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 doesn't like the dog. It uh, although the dog ends up in a much worse condition than the cow. I, I think the cow's still alive at the end of the novel, right? Oh yeah, because they give him extra cows at the end. To, to, oh, that's to, true. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the cow cow survives through the end intact. It, it, it did its job and did its. Then she did it well. Mm-hmm. But a holy cow, I had not thought of that. 
Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's it, he doesn't. I mean, it, it's it's a very. Uh, I mean, he could have chosen a horse or a mule. Much, yeah, yeah, it would have been much more um, practically. I mean, cows are not well known for pulling pulling wagons full of guys with mechanical arms and. I guess only mechanical arms. He doesn't seem to have legs, does he? Yeah, he yeah he 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 has. I don't think he has any uh, mechanical uh, legs. He just has mechanical arms. Hmm. Yeah. So yeah, the scene with him getting those arms and legs temporarily, um, they're given and then taken away. Uh, it, it it's kind of interesting because it's it's all it also reflects the uh, the crucifixion, right? Um. Jesus has arms and legs, but he can't move because they're they're fixed. And and in having had them, and then uh, having it taken away, it's this, it's the same uh, it's the same kind of miracle that Jesus would perform. But there's a there's a I quite like the ending. What do you guys think about the ending? That that he that he find that uh, he finds this. Uh Vagrant, or are you talking about the ending? Uh, that that's good too. I like that. Um, but yeah, no, I was talking about like the 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 ultimate conclusion about him him figuring out whether it doesn't whether it matters or not. Uh, and also, the, there's also the ending with the the priest, which is kind of interesting. But the, the the dissolution of the of uh, Luftafell. Right, he's dead. Oh yeah, and then he meets his daughter, and and his and his daughter is uh, cured, or at least uh, healed. Yeah, her. Yep. Her retardation is gone, or which suggests that yes, he is. He does take part in divinity. He was the incarnation of the Deuce mm-hmm. Ira. It does. It does seem to confirm that, as as unlikely as the Christians seem to think that this guy is could ever be a divinity. Yes, he did have partake in divinity. Was he the same power that visited Tibor on the road? If Tibor really met somebody on the road, is it the same power that Pete Sands dealt with in his little, in his drug dream? Uh, although that, that seemed to be more the Christian God than, uh, than the Jews. I, yeah, I, I, it, it seems, it seems this is a case and this might be some of the Zelazny influence, influence that yes, the old, all divinity, all the divinities do exist in this novel to one extent or another, on one plane of a reality or another. And and they also all feed in. Uh, if you believe the, I can't remember the the priest's name is. Uh, he's got a funny name, but there's a there's a Doctor Abernathy. Abernathy, that's right, Doctor Abernathy. So he's an asshole at the beginning of the book. I'm not sure he's much of an improved at the end. Um, and the narrator really plays that up too. You really want to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, he's he's like because um, he, 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 he's playing devil's advocate uh, a lot of the time, which you wouldn't think uh, he should, given his position. But uh, at the end, he he makes this very dubious connection between um, the ozone in the air that day um, and the and then we're we're led to the conclusion that it's because of the passing of. Uh, Luftafell, right? The oh yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to mention that there's there's a definitely an Arthurian motif in this novel. Mm-hmm. Um, Pete Sands talks about the whole vision the whole vision with his the wound on the side. Mm-hmm. He's um, he does 
He does go on a holy quest to rescue Tibor. And after Lupicel dies, the, the Earth, especially Alice, but the Earth world does seem to be um, healing. And so it's like yeah, Dolores, it's yeah, healing of the land, Dolores wounds. And right. That's all Arthurian mythology, which ties back in with the Christian uh, iconography. Yeah, I mean, the, the wound of Jesus, right, as right. well. Yeah. Yeah, so... Yeah, that's I didn't make the Arthurian connection, but that's a good a good one. Um is that is, is the last thing into that? Um uh, one one of his most famous stories is The Last Defender of Camelot, so yeah. Oh right, I've read that one. Um that is a good point. <laughs> yeah, that's a good story too. Yeah. I had a question, maybe you guys know, you guys know a lot more about Dick than I. This novel was dedicated to Stanley Weinbaum and the Martian artist Odyssey, and I can't huh. figure out why. You guys have any theories on that? Um, <laughs> well, um, I've read The Martian Odyssey. The artist of The Martian Odyssey, did you say? No, the au- the author, sorry. Yeah, okay. Um, well, Stanley Weinbaum. Why did he write that? No, what, you, got, you guys read that, uh, Martian Odyssey? A long time ago. Yeah. Um, I don't know. That's kind of a weird... Uh, person, to, maybe he's he's saying, "Look, this is a science fiction book." <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I I can't even uh, really see where there's a connection between that that novella and this. I don't really see anything that there, really connects there, it to that. Well, one. There, there's there's a guy going across a landscape. That's that's uh, really being, vague, Jesse. Uh, well, it's it it's. A guy going across the landscape alone, and he has a series of adventures, um, meeting a companion a- along the way. It's not much of a connection, I agree, but <laughs> it's the only thing I can think of because it's not actually a very good story. It, it it's maybe important and interesting, uh, but it doesn't like when I think of great science fiction stories, I don't think of that. It's important and interesting, I guess, but it's not um it's not great. So yeah, I, I don't know why he would uh, either of those guys would 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 attribute it to him other other than maybe he was a nice guy. I mean, looking at the Wikipedia page for Martian Odyssey, it was back in back in the 60s and 70s was considered a classic of the field. Mhm. I I don't know if that's really true much so so true anymore. Well, but, you know, uh, but that's this, this passage of time. Um, you know, I think it's 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 important. It's an important story because it's really the first one of the first real science, if not the first real science fiction to come out of what was theoretically a science fiction field uh, in the twenties. But really wasn't. I mean, if you try to read anything in Amazing Stories that isn't by H.G. Wells or Jules Verne, guys who were, you know, had written those things dozens of years before, it's crap. I mean, there's nothing good. There's very little good in there. There's a, a couple of okay things here and there, but it's mostly junk. And this is actually not junk. It's it's interesting. It's not a very well written story. It's not super interesting, um, other than because it's so young. In, in in and it does sort of the things like it's set on Mars, and it says, well, maybe life on Mars is different than ours. How would it be different? 
and that, and the aliens aren't all evil. Let's kill. Let's kill the humans. They have their yeah, own th- a, a threat. They're just aliens. Yeah, they're just aliens doing their own thing. Yeah, I mean, it, if you if you move that story up to today and re- put it out under the title Martian Odyssey, people would say this title does not fit. Right? The reason that it's important is because of where it fits in the in the history of science fiction. It's important to a lot of people who read science fiction or, you know, like Philip K. Dick is from the generation after that. Right. So those are the things that he was. I mean, if (laughs) the funny thing is, is Philip K. Dick's favorite author was A.E. Van Vogt, uh, who is not actually a very good writer. Sorry to tell you. Uh, (laughs) Well, his his, his style, I can I can see where. Dick gets some of his ideas on style from both. I mean, changing yeah. things up, changing things up every thousand words just just for the sake of throwing a plot twist is very, very Dixian or Bambodian if you want if you want to go yeah, that there's way. Stu- there's stuff. There's stuff you could see why he would be interested in it, um, but it's not good. It's not good stuff. It's not. Uh, and Martian Odyssey actually is is better than that, I think. So it, it was in the just, science fiction hall of fame. I guess it's looked upon as a influential story. It is an it is an influential story. I think a lot of people would say, "Wow, this is what this is the model that we're going to try and go after." Not that they actually wrote um, that, but it, you can see how important it would be. And so it, it might be a like a a callback to somebody who's maybe when when did Weinbaum die? Maybe he was getting old. Ah. Stanley G. Weinbaum, 1935. He died wow. very young. Wow, so, yeah, he died almost th- died a, year, a year after the story. Wow. Yeah, very, but, but, yeah. But yeah, this must have been a formative influence on Dick and on Zelazny, and maybe that's why they dedicated it to him. It did, I just didn't see any real connection otherwise, and I was curious. Well, yeah, you know, they write a lot of books, those guys, though, Philip Kiddick. <laughs> uh, you know, he's he's going to thank A.E. Van Vogt at some point, right? Um, he's got to go through the list of people to thank. Um, so, yeah, I don't I don't know other than that. Well, it's, it, it's worth reading. Ask uh, Professor Rapkin. <laughs> I don't... I, I mean, a lot of this, a lot of this sort of, these things, you cannot answer by doing even a lot of scholarship because a lot of it is sort of whimsical. I mean, the fact that Ted White was involved with this book at all, I would not bet money that that was true. You know, if you said Roger Zelazny, I would say, I don't know, maybe, but um, Ted White, I don't see how he could be connected because there just happened to be science fiction writers of contemporary era. I didn't even know they had any conversations. The, the I other guess they had coffee together. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably right. And talked about religion, probably. The other major science fiction work that this I compared to, even though they're completely different, and we can talk about mm. that, is of course the Canticle for Leibowitz. Right, and a lot of people I think are apt to make that comparison, uh, but I've not read the book because I found it to be totally boring. Um, and also uh, reading about it made me sound like I I would not like it at all. Have you read a time of home? I I, I haven't read it. Uh, I but Scott made that same comparison. Yeah, a lot of I think a lot of people are apt to make that comparison because they are essentially post-apocalyptic religion stories, right? Right, right but this this one's much more science fantasy, 
Gnostic, almost almost like a funhouse, although that that might be un, un, unfair. Funhouse sort of mutants and weird weird landscapes, artifacts, weird computers buried. Whereas dung beetles, dung beetle, dung beetles, lizards, strange hunt, strange hunters who may or may not be part of strange societies. I didn't know whether he was or not. I don't know if he was on the level. Yeah. Of yeah, what, what were the runners? I don't know if the authors knew or not. <laughs> Sorry, Tim. What are you going to say? Well, what are runners? Um, runners. There was a bunch of different labels for different animals. There was the the there was the dung beetle people. Um, I think they were just yeah the bugs. The bugs. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, push, pushing push the little balls. Um, there was there was those lizards. Or yeah. The, liz, the yeah, those, yeah, those they had another name as well. Lizzies. Lizzies. Right? Yeah, the lizard, the talking lizard people, the talking bird. Um, Wasn't there something called runners, or do I have it wrong? No, there, could be. There, no, there's something called runners, but I don't think we actually met them. I think oh, there's the little black boys. Is that is that them? All the, the little the little boys? kids. Yeah, but they're specifically called the little black boys, which is kind of weird. The, the, I think those. Yeah, I think the, I thought those were human. Yeah, the the ones okay. in the computer. Yeah, are. Or, but there but the, there are a certain kind of human because they don't they they don't attract the interest of the sea, the great sea, right? Right. Um, that it, it's it's kind of like the great sea only, um, only will eat if it's hungry, <laughs> or if you've got a good question. Right. And, you, because, and you can't be a virgin. Maybe that's what it is. <laughs> I think that's uh, the the original uh, myth. I don't think that um, in the original story, the Great Sea, um, he's got a he's got a girlfriend, but I don't know if he's married. I don't think he, the implication in that story is that he's going to come back and marry the girlfriend, but actually he's being sacrificed, right? Because nobody yep. expects him to come back, right? Um. But I guess that was true of the the original myth as well. Nobody expected them to come back. You know what story I was thinking of? Uh, I have no mouth, but I must scream. Oh, the elephant, yeah. Oh, because of the the machine god and the mad machine god? Right, and at the end, uh, the guy becomes like a a slug at the end, to spoil it. That's right. Yeah, the the guy does does, uh, get uh, transformed by, by Am. It's about the right time, but um, that's in the 70s, isn't it? Well, I don't um, know if Dick read it, but I just... I just no, I don't think it no. was, because this was mostly written before. Right. Actually, I heard the audio drama of that, and uh, David Soule was the guy that was turned to a slug at the end. And he... Oh, it's 1968 and 1967. That, that's, that's that old? I would have thought it more 70s. I didn't realize it was that old. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's, that's a disturbing story. Yeah, with the I like the the um, I mean that's sort of Harlan Ellison's take on religion too, right? Because the name of the supercomputer is M, right? And that's also another name for God. I am that I am, yeah. Yeah, they they mention that in this. I am who I am, and I that's all that I am. No, that's Popeye. (laughs) (laughs) I know (laughs) Popeye. Popeye's God as well, apparently. But yeah, um, good, 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 good. (laughs) <laughs> well, he has superpowers when he eats his spinach. That's right. It's the fruit from the garden or something. I don't know. He, he brings on the day as he <laughs> after he eats spinach. That's right. 
That's right. No, I think I think there's uh, there's something cool about the ending of this book because it 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 says it it has this idea of you know good comes out of evil. Oh, sorry, evil comes out of good. No, wait, evil turns into good. The ends justify the means. Well, or the means justify the ends. It, it's it's all for the good. Which is also, by the way, now that I think about it, that's the um, that's the philosophy behind uh, Candide. Have you read that, Paul? Yeah, the Voltaire, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, Voltaire's Candide. Everything that happens is is for is for the best. He's the eternal optimist. That's right. That's right. And of course, everything that happens is terrible, and so it's is like ridiculing the idea. But in this case, it's it's not ridiculing the idea. It's it's taking it seriously. Because, you know, there's been a nuclear war, right? <laughs> and so one reaction to that is say, oh, it was good. It was good that we had a nuclear war. <laughs> Why? Um, well, because I guess we'll just worship the Deus Aere, uh, because he's very, obviously very powerful. Um, and it's all for the best, right? Because just like in Noah, right? Uh, the story of Noah and, and the ark. Um, it's good that God destroyed everybody on the earth except for Noah and his family. It's good. Why? Well, because God's good. It's a spring cleaning. <laughs> the ultimate <laughs> spring cleaning. It, 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 that kind of logic, like if, you, if you've talked to people who are very religious, um, they don't tend to get stuck at that point, right? They don't say, wait a second, are you telling me... But see, Philip K. Dick is funny, and I don't know about Zelazny, but Philip K. Dick is funny because he'll get stuck at that point, and then he'll try and figure out a way that maybe I'm wrong. And that's what kind of happens here, because what happens at the end is this evil that happened to the world, uh, the destruction of everybody caused by uh, Luftefell, is ultimately a good thing because the dung beetle's happy. <laughs> I guess um, there's some people still alive. The palm trees are blooming. Somebody's going to enjoy that sermon that that the uh, doctor, whatever his name Abernathy. is, Abernathy's that that name, by the way, is a very Philip K. Dickian name. It comes up a, a few times. Um, Why is he a doctor and not a father? I think it's I think it's a um, doctor of theology. Yeah, is my guess. Oh, okay, but uh, <laughs> um, that that passing of good out of evil the, the he makes a point something like uh well it's not a point he's arguing with himself there's a lot of internal arguments people you know sitting around the campfire saying i don't like wh the way he's doing this why is he why is he annoying me in that in that manner a lot of people arguing with themselves in their own head but at the end when that argument happens he says well gr good is not as strong as evil. Evil is the most powerful word for, for badness. Good is very weak in comparison to, in to comparison to the word evil. And that's true, he says, but good ultimately triumphs, right? And the evil that happens is all for the good. And it's like, well, oh, that's a very clever, sophistic argument. Well, he, and it kind of works. Well, he is a doctor of theology, that, 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 that there's a lot of wordplay and wrangling with the words. There's a lot of there's a lot of German in this book too. 
ton of German and also a ton of um, allusions to other literature. So one point in the story there was, I, I don't speak German, so I don't know enough about what was going on there uh, in, the, in the audiobook, and I... I don't have a physical copy, so I couldn't like stop and try and parse it out. But um, at one point, uh, some character says, and the stars threw down their spears. Um, and then the, the line after that as well, um, something about the rain, rain of, of tears. And I said, oh, that's, uh, I know that one because I was just reading it the other day. It's William Blake's Tiger, Tiger, right? Yeah. Tiger, Tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night. Etc. Yeah, that, that 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 that's right. Yeah, and, and Blake was another person who was almost trying to create a Gnostic mythology and iconography. That poem is very much a, a sort of a Gnostic poem, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, he ties in with his own takes to uh, try to build a mythology and an iconography for religion for himself in his own in his own work. So yeah, that makes perfect sense that that Zelazny and uh, Dick would. Uh, Grab that and throw that into the into, into, into a lot the blender. I forgot poems in here in this in this uh, <laughs> yeah. you know the currency of of half forgotten poems and in, in, it's it's kind of I get a lot of students and I, we do a lot of poetry and they say I hate poetry I say that's okay you'll need it in later life <laughs> which I actually think is true right because kids they don't need uh, poetry. Uh, when they're young, they just, you know, they don't like it, they don't get it. But as you get older, hopefully, um, you actually ne- will need it because you're going to go to things like funerals and weddings. Um, and these social uh, uh, events, like funerals and weddings, often call for you to use the vocabulary and um, imagery from from uh poetry that you may half remember from your youth and have being forced to study it which it doesn't seem like a very good reason to study it but actually is it, those are very important occasions they're cultural tools yeah for those mm-hmm. for, the, for those sorts of situations for sealing for sealing uh, social relationships you know if you can't give a speech at your own uh family's funeral uh that 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 incompetency is actually damaging not just to your social relationships with others, but also to yourself. I don't really read any poetry, but thanks for the tip. <laughs> well, I, I would recommend Tiger, Tiger. Well, um, I know that because of Stars by Destination. Right, uh, which um, he's the tiger, right? He's right. the tiger. That, 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 was, tiger. That, that was the title of the book originally. Tiger, um, Tiger, yeah. Right. Um, Tiger, Tiger, here it is. Tiger, Tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night. What immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? You have to read it like that. You can't say symmetry. That doesn't work. Although it does work in the sense that it makes you see that it's a forced rhyme. Um, but what if the tiger is not actually a tiger, right? It's got to be a person or man. Because um, the next lines... In what deeps or skies burnt the fire of thine eyes? On what wings does, dare he aspire? What the hand, what the hand dare sees the fire? The, that sounds like Prometheus to me. Yep. And what, and what shoulder and what art could twist the sinews of thy heart? 
And th- th- that reminds me of uh, the Alfred Bester book, The Twisted Sinews of Thy Heart. And when thy heart began to beat, what dread hand and what dead feet? Uh, sorry, what dread feet? Uh, tigers don't have hands. All right, so uh, I'll, I'll but, use that at the next funeral. There you go. What the hammer? What the chain? In the furnace was thy brain? What the anvil? What dread grasp? Dare its deadly terrors clasp? And then the final stanza before the repeat of the, of the, the penultimate stanza here. When the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven yep. with their tears, did he smile his work to see? Yep. That's God smiling down, right? Uh, did he who made the lamb capitalized? lamb make me um and is the lamb the lamb of god jesus or is the lamb uh just the the tiger and the lamb lying down together right it's very gnostic yeah is gnostic just holy what is gnostic exactly it's um i'll go for that one yeah it's well, back 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 in the first and second century ad there was a whole shrub of variants of Christianity and mystical Judaism that came out of the life of Jesus. And some of them were, were much, much more innerly focused and focused with a whole variety of uh, powers and mystical experiences. And that, 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 that collection of traditions, which got shunted out of Christian, out of the main body of Christianity is what is known as Gnosticism. This, it's going out into a cave. Going out into the cave and about, having mystical visions. Yeah, thinking about stuff and and then writing it down and then sharing that with a bunch of other weirdos who go out into their own caves and writing it down and then. So it's a vision quest. It's kind of a visiony quest, but it's it's specifically usually focused on the previous uh, revelations, right? So that's the thing is is. A lot of religion is revelate, revelatory, right? You have it revealed to you. You see behind the curtain. Um, you hear about somebody else here, you know, going behind the curtain. Then you go out and do it yourself. Um, and this is what happens in this book, and that's why it's so Gnostic, right? I mean, to tie, tie in with contempor- contemporary stuff, you heard about the that fragment that they found of... Uh, that mentions uh, Jesus right. being married. That they just they've just uh, reaffirmed that it was written at that time and it's not a forgery. Right. But yeah, yeah they, there's a yeah. whole lot of stuff that must be buried throughout the Middle East of all sorts of variant traditions that that died out or never really went anywhere. Yeah, uh, all the all the different stories about Jesus are are really just sort of gnosis that's been canonized, right? It's been made. May, may, yeah, made to be official, yeah, at the Council yeah. of Nicaea and, and other such places. Yeah, and the thing is, is what they do is they pick out the cool stuff and they say, wow, this really works, right? Um, and it, it, it's, <laughs> religion is, is Jesus fan fiction, if you're a Christian. Um, it's, it's people who are not Jesus writing about Jesus, um, and saying, wouldn't it be cool if, and, and, so a lot of it, I think, is along the lines of the thing I hate about a lot of uh, these modern movies that go back and do old stuff is they do what's called fan service, you know, <laughs> like where they they say, oh, we're going to give the shout out to, right, whatever. So 
Did you guys see the Veronica Mars movie? I did not. I'm not really a Veronica Mars fan. Oh, man, that's a good show. I want to see it. Uh, well, I think it's a great show. It's a really, really fun show. Um, don't watch the movie, though, because it is, it's got way too much fan service in it. It spends half the time just meeting up with old characters and say, hey, where you been in the last ten years? Sort of thing. Um, and that sort of hurts the story. Um, which is a good story. Did you listen but, uh, to the audiobook by the star of the movie? No, no, I didn't. Uh, but I saw the movie. Uh, so, yeah, I think if you... If this is Philip K. Dick's, and I guess Roger Zelazny's take on on uh, one of these vision quests. But, but the, so many of the other books by Dick are like this anyways. Like, um, uh, there's one we did as a read-along with uh, Julie Davis called uh, Galactic Pot Healer. Yeah, you guys yeah I've read one? that one, yeah. Um, and that that's uh, I, I, a much more light-hearted one. Tam, did you read that one? No, I haven't. Uh, it's a good book. Um, in fact, I think it's one of his better novels. Um, and it's kind of the same idea. It's a guy sort of having a crisis of faith, um, and he gets a call from a god to come help him. And it 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 pays off a lot better. There's a lot. There's no you know dangling uh, plot lines or animals that don't serve the purpose of <laughs> things. So this is not really a great book. It's interesting, and I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend it to people who who don't um, like Philip K. Dick stuff to begin with. But it certainly it was worth reading. But yeah, it does have a pretty awful um, difficulty getting started. And it doesn't know where quite where to start the story, which is a can be a fatal flaw. It, uh, but I think they just start. He just started writing, and it never really cleaned it up. Cleaned it up at the at the. End. No, there's not enough editing going on in this book. That's for sure. And you know, taking twelve years, it's also you know, I can't remember what I was going to write about this. Right, the, the disappearing, reappearing characters. Oh, suddenly the dog is back. Like I said before, like mm. and 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 the whole Pete going on the on doing that uh, early. Uh, meditation slash drug thing and he never does it again although mm-hmm. although it's implied and said that he's almost addicted to doing that but he never even tempted to try it again why not mm-hmm. why didn't he take his drugs with him and and do it again especially when he was trying to find Tibor and- there's, there's so much like that at one point he goes out of the camp and and communicates with his uh, Abernathy I guess it yeah, is with, right? with the radio yeah right and that um <laughs> I can just see Philip K. Dick picking up the phone and calling that religious guy he was he was always hanging out with and say, "Hey, uh, yeah, I was interested in this one issue." And then that that guy's having a bad day, you know, so he's really grumpy <laughs> because that's exactly what it's, it's just you know like pastors are they're just people too. They have chemicals in their heads, and when they wake up grumpy without enough cigarettes and coffee, they. They uh they can be grumpy on the phone. Didn't Abernathy take away the drugs, or he wanted to take away the drugs? He was just an asshole. I think yeah. he he was he was he was fucking with everybody. It's it's, it's he's not a sympathetic character by any means. He gets more sympathetic at the end, but that's uh 
It takes a long time to get there. He's still, he is still an asshole, though. I mean, the way he talks about his congregation. And that'll be entertaining for them. <laughs> like, okay. And when, when we're working hard to try to grow it and... Yeah. Yeah. Didn't he want Peter's girlfriend, too? Like, he, he was like... Yeah. What's yeah, he like Peter's... Bed? Yeah, that was yeah. kind of creepy. Yeah. He's an asshole. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I have a feeling he's based on a real person. <laughs> or at least one, one or more real persons. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.